am old, older than thought in your species, which is itself 50 times older than your history. Though I have been on Earth for ages, I am from the stars. My home is no one planet, for many worlds scattered through the shining disk of the galaxy have conditions, which allow my spores, an opportunity for life. The mushroom which you see, is the part of my body given to sex thrills, and sunbathing. My true body, is a fine network of fibers, growing through the soil. These networks may cover acres, and may have far more connections than the number in a human brain. This network is nearly means impossible to explain because of certain misconceptions in your model of reality, all my mycelial networks in the galaxy are in a hyperlight communication across space and time. The mycelial body is as fragile as a spider's web, but the collective hypermind and memory is a vast historical archive of the career of evolving intelligence. On many worlds in our spiral star swarm, that space, you see, is a vast ocean to those hardy life forms that have the ability to reproduce from spores. For spores are covered with the hardest organic substance known. Across the eons of time and space, drift many spore-forming life forms in suspended animation for millions of years, until contact is made with a suitable environment. Few such species are sentient. Only myself, and my recently evolved near relatives, have achieved the hyper-communication mode, and memory capacity, that makes us leading members in the community of galactic intelligence. How the hyper-communication mode operates, is a secret, which will not be lightly given to humans. But, the means should be obvious. It is the occurrence of psilocybin, and psilocin, in the biosynthetic pathways of my living body, that opens for me and my symbiotes, the vision screens to many worlds. You, as an individual, and Homo sapiens as a species, are on the brink of the formation of a symbiotic relationship and earth into the galactic mainstream of the higher civilizations. Since it is not easy for you to recognize other varieties of intelligence around you, your most advanced theories of politics and society have advanced only as far as the notion of collectivism. But, beyond the cohesion of the members of a species into a single social organism, there lie richer and even more baroque evolutionary possibilities. Symbiosis is one of these. Symbiosis is a relation of mutual dependence and positive benefits for both of the species involved. Symbiotic relationships between myself and civilized forms of higher animals have been established many times and in many places throughout the long ages of my development. These relationships have been mutually useful within my memory is the knowledge of hyperlight drive ships, and how to build them. I will trade this knowledge for a free ticket to new worlds, around suns younger, and more stable than your own. To secure an eternal existence, down the long river of cosmic time, I again, and again offer this agreement to higher beings, 
and thereby have spread throughout the galaxy over the long millennia. A mycelial network has no organs to move the world. No hands, but higher animals with manipulative abilities can become partners with the star knowledge within me. And, if they act in good faith, return both themselves and their humble mushroom teacher to the million worlds to which all citizens of our star swarm are heir. You are now approaching the Omega Point, via Corridor 23, Acceleration Subchannel Theta. Be not afraid. Please remain seated until your transdimensional escort arrives. Smoking is only permitted in designated areas. Violators will be reincarnated without warning. Thank you. Welcome to War Machine. My name is Matt, and what you just heard was an excerpt from the preface of Psilocybin, Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, uh, first published back in 1969, where Terence McKenna briefly adopts the voice of a mushroom. I had made reference to that towards the end of the first part of this conversation, and went and found it, and it was just too cool not to include as a kind of sci-fi intro. Um, it's also referenced several times during this part of the conversation, wherein Petra and I conclude our discussion with Justin Pearl, reviewing Terence McKenna's final interview from 1999. Uh, so that is 30 years after, not 20 as I say somewhere, somewhere in here. I'm good at math. All right, enjoy. I'll uh, fire up this video and we'll get started. Awesome. I'm pretty sure this is where we left off. It's certainly true that we see a, a limited slice of reality. Uh, and your example from Flatland, yes, anything which moves as a gradient through time, we will not discern very carefully. I mean, for instance, this is why we have the science of economics, because it keeps track of the behavior of markets, which is something you can't see or feel, but which has become very important to human institutions. It's a fourth dimensional factor that we need to coordinate into our planning. So we've created an entire science to study the movement and behavior uh, of markets. What One of the things, I'm always trying to visualize what the concrescence would be like, even though I know that in principle it's probably not possible to imagine it. But several factors are on the horizon which I think can be brought together to sort of get a picture of what we're headed toward. One is our, for some time now we've been involved in building complex prostheses 
which we call machines and computers. They are part of us. We don't perceive them as part of us because we identify with the flesh and exteriorize the the fabricated metal. But in fact, they are a part of us as much as our political systems, our agriculture production systems, so forth and so on. So we, the animal body, has reached the limits of its evolutionary abilities. A cheetah can run 75 miles an hour. Petra, how much of what he's saying right now lines up with your work? Because some of what he's talking about registers to me as a form of constructivism, yep. but, but also as a sort of, like you were saying last time, like the uh, Haraway vision. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I was just thinking about how when in time uh, Donna Haraway wrote uh, the Cyborg Manifesto in 85, I think, or at least that was when it was published. And uh, and she got, of course, a lot of critique from the feminist movement back then when, when it was more about a kind of back to nature, uh, romanticism uh, and uh, kind of finding your womanhood in the woods and those kind of things and then uh, and she came with her manifesto that was just saying no let's just accept that we are partly machines partly metal as he's saying now and to me when I read that uh, now and also when having studied uh, uh, the constructivist the, the art groups uh, constructivist that that was just such a liberating read for me to simply because it says that we may not be where we want to be. Maybe we, we would like to be like these foresty people, natural kind of men and women or whatever, I don't know. Uh, but this is what we are and this is where we are at. And, that, and, and, and so let's start working. This is also kind of, this is a matter that we have now to work with and we can still change on basis of that. And I, I sent that that's kind of what he's saying here as well. I mean, isn't that the beauty of his way of reasoning is his acceptance of where we have ended up and kind of the embrace of all that. Although I find that he kind of places it in this narrative of progression that I'm not so keen on. But And I think there's echoes of this that I think go back. So my mind went uh, less to Haraway into somebody like Merleau-Ponty, who talks about, you know, the cane of the uh, of the blind person. So he uses this as one of his, his case studies. And he says, like, that the, the cane functionally becomes part of your body, becomes an extension, that when you when you touch something with it, you don't feel it in your hand where you're holding the cane, you feel it in the tip of the cane. Uh, and it says the same thing with bicycles, which I find really profound that, you know, you do a wheelie on a bicycle when you're a little kid, or maybe if you're an adult and you're in better shape than me, um, but uh, you do a wheelie and when you land, you don't feel the impact in your hands, you feel the impact on the front tire. There's this way that the body expands out into the into the world in this sort of, you know, extended mind way that I think is something he's tapping into here. And what I think the, the way to think about this is, is to think of it moving backwards, um, that this isn't, uh, you know, the cyborg isn't new. Somebody like even Haraway would say, uh, computers did not create, did not make us cyborgs, like pencils make us cyborgs. He, the book is already a, a way of expanding our memory across wow. times. And so we've we sort of always already have been cyborgs in some sense. Yeah, I like that idea of expanded uh, or extended perhaps consciousness he worked a lot with Rupert Sheldrake, for mm -hmm. whom that is, I think, a key idea. That goes along somehow with the way in which he thinks 
of us uh, in a as a collective kind of species or as a as as an event in time and history that is not it's not the individual that is at stake here but it is the Oh. Uh, it's it's the collective experience of being not only like as humanity connected with machines, but also with science such as as the economics, as he describes, and and the way in which we are dependent upon that something that we cannot control and can hardly understand. But that's also kind of another kind of extended uh, oh. kind of way that in which we function in the world and and are dependent upon something greater than ourselves and definitely something greater than the individual. No, absolutely. And I, I'm just thinking back to, there's one line in the, the Mushroom Speaks excerpt where he talks about, you know, you guys have only been able to advance as far as collectivism. I think he's gesturing towards a way of relating beyond collectivism. And I think it gets into this idea of symbiosis that he talks about in that part as well. And isn't that what you're uh, describing there, Justin, a kind of symbiosis with your bike, <laughs> like actually like feeling what the bike is feeling? And that is that move beyond just being, well, just being many or being kind of dependent upon each other. But, but we're actually, our bodies, there is no clear cut line between our bodies and, and things that we are dependent upon mm. or, the, or, or kind of the economic systems that we're dependent upon and yeah. And, and, I, and I think there's sort of like two ways of going with this because you have a, the sort of Merleau-Ponty approach with like, you know, the bicycle example or the other one he likes to do is the car, the way in which um, you, you tend to sort of like pull in when your car is going really close to something. Like if you're going through a narrow gap with your car, you tend to physically pull your body in tight and it's because you experience the sides of the car. So there's this sort of this, this sense that if I, if I squeeze in tight, it'll help my car squeeze, which is of course absurd, um, but, but also not absurd, right? Because you, you can actually feel when you're in a car that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, you feel where the side of the car is, you know where the back is, you know where the front is, intuitively, you know where these are. And it's because you've gone into them. And for somebody like Merleau-Ponty, I feel like there's there's like a, a colonizing way of thinking about this, which is like subjectivity colonizes objects yeah. and, and, yeah. and sort of absorbs them. You're, so, you're the Borg that's going out and absorbing all these objects into your own subjectivity. Um, but I think what's interesting about McKenna is I think it opens up this possibility of, of thinking about it as, like you said, like symbiosis as a mutual interdependence where, where it's not that we colonize objects, it's that subjects and objects are sort of mutually colonizing one another or or maybe you know to drop the colonizing language that, that we are living in these these more complex symbiotic less anthropocentric modes of relating at least ideally i like the way you said it the second time better because mutually colonizing while kinky <laughs> sounding is i don't know it just doesn't do it for me are you going to read the quote that you referred to about in the intro i'll do that uh, okay good <laughs> an elephant can lift three tons and so forth and so on. To go beyond those capacities of the animal body, you have to make a marriage with mechanical things. So uh, we are extending ourselves through the machines. Well, one of the things that these machines do is they're time compressors. Uh, you know, you and I sitting here talking are operating at about 100 hertz if we could be magically downloaded into a top-of-the-line computer, we would run at 800 megahertz. That means we could do 800 million more things in this moment than we can do when we're wearing flesh.
So it may be that we will find a way to technologically stretch time. And this will become for us like a false eternity. You may have only 10 minutes left in your life, but it may be time enough to pack in all of human history from the fall of Rome to the present moment. So we are finding ways out of the three-dimensional Newtonian prison, which says, you know, life is narrow and confined and ends at the grave. Uh, and it's, we're doing it. I just wanted to hop in here because he used that language of the prison. And all I can think of here is something like Black Mirror, which has, has explored a lot this idea of stretching time. As, as is often the case with Black Mirror, you wait about five years and then whatever they were they were sort of talking about dystopically is happening. And there are already people talking about how, you know, if we can upload consciousness, you know, you can stretch time exactly like he's talking about. And you know how great that'll be? We'll be able to, you know, when you give that, that mass murderer 700 year sentences, you can force them to actually spend all 700 years in prison uh, or things along these lines. And, and when I think of this, this time stretching, to me, this is... is is fundamentally terrifying um, yeah. because I'm thinking of the way that that something like this would operate um, with corporations. You know, uh, we now want your intellectual labor. We want uh, 10,000 years of intellectual labor that you'll do during the next 10 minutes of body time. Or we want to stick you in prison for, you know, 700,000 years. These sorts of things become possible and plausible in a way that I, I think I find much more terrifying. He seems to have a very liberative understanding of what this this would look like. Um, and maybe I'm just more pessimistic than him. But I find this really terrifying idea. And and uh, yeah, I also react on the, the prison language and makes me think of of the transhumanism versus posthumanism debate. I think it, it was up last year at the, the God Seminar. Uh, right now, I, I forgot the name of, of the lecture. But, you know, just the idea of that kind of faith in in, techno, in technology that will just uh, that and it just seems so out of date and it and it just seems terrifying and and when being placed next to the post-human ideas that is just a, a completely different way of oh. of uh, a different kind of connectivity which I also think then is there if you listen to when he talks in the voice of the mushroom <laughs> that is, then then he's touching upon the, that kind of symbiosis that is not about like conquering life and time in order to to live forever as as he's uh, kind of leaning towards right now yeah that techno optimism definitely comes through and that was my first thought too justin like you an extended duration sounds like hell to me and if you are mm -hmm. able to bring that about somehow that is the technological creation of an actual hell <laughs> And, and, and yeah. my mind goes into somebody like Altizer, who, who for him, uh, he uses the, the, the theological language of the demonic or the devil, and he, he tends to draw this together with the Hegelian bad infinite. And mm -hmm. like, what is the bad infinite? It is the idea that the infinite is simply one plus one plus one plus one, that you can keep adding quantitatively to get to the infinite. And to me, I think is, is what makes this sort of vision really, really terrifying or, or demonic to use Altizer's language is this idea of, of just, you know, like this, but forever, uh, like uh, that, that sounds horrible. And what, what Hegel wants to say is 
that what we need to think about is the is the true infinite, the authentic infinite, is not a simply a quantitative increase, but is a qualitative shift. And this is what I'm really interested in: is how do we think about eternity not as as quantitative, but as as a qualitative shift, uh, a different way of interacting with time rather than just like a bunch of time. The idea of bad infinity was really interesting, especially in light of like the particular phrase he used, which is, I think he said, false eternity. We're going to create a false eternity. That doesn't sound good to me. I don't want a false eternity. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like this whole techno utopian stuff, as as you say, Petra, is, you know, it sounds a little bit dated, but like I run into this quite often, actually, in ecological discussions. Like, I think there's still this faith that we're going to find a technological fix no, yeah, yeah, I guess in a way, I truly think that we are dependent upon technology also when it comes to the climate crisis, if we are going to be able to live mm. on this planet for that much longer. So, so I mean, that will definitely, uh, I mean, that doesn't help us away from, from that kind of technology romanticism, but yeah. All right. By becoming information that is freed from material, And somehow this allows us to make this ascent to the next dimensional modality. Information is not uh, time and space constrained the way we are. We talk about the difficulty of moving uh, uh, an object at the speed of light. Our entire planetary technology cannot achieve moving a marble at the speed of light. But we can move information at the speed of light tetrabytes of it. We do this every day. So we see, aha, we stand then like children at the edge of the ocean of information, and we're putting our feet in and wondering, you know, could we swim in that? What would it be like to be wet in that? What would it be like to go into that new medium? A similar dilemma must have confronted the early amphibians as they stared at the land and said, you know, could we leave the ocean? Could we go up? into those places? Could we breathe air and actually make the transition to such a hostile and alienating environment as the land? And so these are major cemetery breaks. But in every case, the answer has been, you bet. And sooner or later, somebody did it. And then all succeeding generations uh, have followed suit. What is fascinating about this particular transition is that we are conscious of the implications. We who will make the transition will in some sense, some limited sense, understand its implications, where I don't think that was true for the animals that left the primordial ocean. They simply were behaving blind instinct and evolutionarily dictated behaviors. But the degrees of freedom accessible to us are so uh, multifarious that we can actually appreciate for the first time our circumstance. And our circumstance is awe-inspiring. I mean, we are about to take the step out of matter. The planet is on a collision course with the most profound event it's possible to imagine. The freeing of organic life from the chrysalis of matter. For a billion years there's been life on this planet, but never life that could step outside of matter. But this is obviously what's in the cards, and we are privileged to be central to that event. 
you just said a. No, I, I, I mean, his optimism is uh, a bit contagious. I guess it's. I mean, it's kind of. It's just not nice to hear. But the, but I. But it also just makes me so sad since it's like just before we we fully realize what we've actually done to the planet. He's sitting there in 1999, and and he's he actually. He actually believes that we have this beautiful future ahead where everything is possible. Um, and, and I can absolutely sense and understand that since, since that, that was actually a time when, uh, when uh, kind of development peaked in that way, that it had been uh, 100 years of, of uh, absolute constant progress when it comes to, to the possibilities and technological possibilities for, for life and uh, for humans, I mean. Uh, and that is kind of, after that interview, is kind of where it went the other way. I mean, this is, as you say, peak optimism for what the internet was going to bring to future generations and, and so on. And I think it was just something in the water at that time. There was a sense that, you know, something's about to happen, something's changing. Uh, and then, you know, Fukuyama, end of history. Yeah. Doop -de -doo. <laughs> and, and, and I think thinking, you know, economically, he's saying this at the tail end of, of economic vitality as well. And what, what are you going to see uh, a few years after this? You're going to see the, the first internet bubble burst. Um, yeah. And we are going to have massive unemployment in the early 2000s coming out of the tech sectors. And I think a, a lot of the techno-optimism I think will partially fizzle out because of the, you know, the economic realities will come kind of crashing in on us after this moment. And also the way in which uh, the, I mean, many believe that the internet would save the democracy and would, would enable, would get everyone a, a voice and will that happen? But you know, there was all of these hopes connected to those uh, technical advantages. Connecting with that uh, just a little bit more is like, I'm also really intrigued thinking of, of his language of freedom here, that he, he views this through like, like he kept saying free, freed and freedom. He said probably, you know, 10 times in the last two minutes um, of this clip, but it's a very strange vision of freedom that for him to be free is to be freed from materiality. So it's a, it's a Gnostic vision, I think, ultimately yeah. sort of a, a techno Gnosticism. And I, I don't know, I, again, I don't want to be like, like too overly critical, but I'm, I'm tempted to want to go with a vision that's about that's about returning into the world and digging deeper into the flesh of the world and and the embrace of imminence and things along those lines where this idea that you know our salvation will come when we you know pull the ejection lever and and shoot off that sounds like the theological vision that i was given within like my evangelical upbringing except god has been replaced with uh you know the biggest coolest computer yeah um, no completely it's yeah. it's the whole elon musk vision you know when people get excited about you know we're going to go to mars i'm like why? That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, all this talk like in the, um, uh, that part with the mushroom speaks, which is much earlier than, than this is, I think that was like, must've been about 20, yeah, about 20 years earlier, he wrote that mushroom thing, but right. But he's talking about symbiosis with the mycelial network, which, you know, is going to launch humanity into some kind of escape vector and the, whatever the big computer or the mushroom God is going to help humanity build an ark going to get a blueprint for a hyperlight starship. And it's just so deeply theological. It's hard not to hear or read it through Christian theology. And then like, there's this idea of like consuming the mushroom itself. 
and becoming one with it. That sounds very Eucharistic. Uh, yeah, yeah, true. But I also find that now when we're talking about this and yeah, all three of us can feel that, no, this is not our dream. We, we don't dream of this anymore. And this is not our vision. And that is kind of comforting for me because I find that it was not so many years ago that, you know, we had no alternative visions for what is progress. Well, that's spaceships, that's kind of flying cars. That was as far as, you, and, and like food pills, and that was as far as you could go when imagining something more or something better or whatever than this. And now I think all, for all three of us, it's like, no, we don't want to leave the ground. We want to get closer to, you have your dog walking around in the background, Justin. And it, you, know, you want to spend more time with your dog. <laughs> like, it, those are the kind of things that we dream about. And thinking about like that, that mushroom piece, you know, it's the sense I got in that mushroom piece was that the sort of symbiotic relationship in some sense, which I think is, is a really powerful vision that I think is in some sense sort of fundamentally at odds with this techno-gnosticism. Because uh, like the techno-gnosticism is, is all about getting out. These become launching points that, you know, like you use the, the language, Matt, of the escape trajectory um, that, you know, you grab onto the mushroom and you hold onto the mushroom until it accelerates you so you can launch off. And what does that mean? It means you leave the mushroom behind. And so there's a certain sense in which this vision of entering into this sort of techno eternity of, of downloaded minds where he seems to be forgetting everything that he's leaving behind. And it loses that symbiotic, the beauty of the symbiotic image. Uh, and instead it's this, you know, I don't know, entering the matrix image that, that is, is less appealing to me. And I don't think he ever talks about any actual relations to other humans or animals or anything really in this interview, does he? Or we'll see. That's an interesting point. Let's find out. I think we're about to see an ad though. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to take any guesses on what it's going to be for? I'm guessing hemorrhoidal cream. This is the air outside your house. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. I was right. Imagine what you mean. Can you try to talk a little bit more about that? Well, first of all, I can't quite imagine what we mean either. I think this is the test, is to, un to imagine what could that mean. Maybe the bridge uh, concept is virtual reality. Obviously, we're on the brink of building computer-assisted worlds that don't quote-unquote really exist, but the, which we will experience the way we experience dreams or the imagination. And I think this is where psychedelic substances come in. Shamans have always entered into a, a non-physical realm of information through trance. In a way, there's nothing new here. This is part of the archaic revival. <laughs> Will you still love me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? <laughs> um, are we rolling? Uh, I've forgotten the thread. What was it? Oh, oh, is it a human thing? Is it a unique 
is this ascent into novelty a human thing? No, part of what I discern here, though we humans are always ready to suffer guilt and take blame for everything going on in the universe, I don't believe this is something we are doing. I think that we are as much corks tossed on the ocean of time as are hummingbirds and uh, prairie dogs. In other words, any, an event of cosmic significance and importance is going to occur not far in the future. Are we causing it? No. Can we stop it? No. Can we hurry it? No. It's built in to the structure of matter itself. One way of thinking. Okay. But isn't this just at odds with the way in which he talks about freedom and yes. earlier on? And, and I sense that he's going back and forth with that uh, all through this interview, that at times it's, it seems as if we are actually there, we, are, we have the privilege of being in this time where we can actually make the choices, or, and then it's, we are just like the dinosaurs, we just happen to be here. And, and uh... I, I wonder if it's possible to think about what, what a reparative reading on this account might be because my instinct is also to be like, ah, like there's a contradiction there. Because what I'm wondering is maybe instead of saying that this contradicts his language of freedom, I'm wondering if we could ask instead the question, what is the conception of freedom that's undergirding this image where this would be perceived as freedom? Um, and I don't have an answer to that, but I'm just, that seems to strike me as maybe the question to get at what's happening here. Cause he clearly has, Freedom is really important to him, but it almost reminds me of like a Catholic notion of freedom. So right, you have like the sort of libertarian freedom of like the Enlightenment age often clashes with the Catholic notion of freedom, because in the Catholic notion of freedom, you're truly free when you live into what you are or like when you, you live along with your nature. And so what I'm wondering is if in some sense for him, freedom in some sense is living, I don't know, living together with the this sort of evolutionary movement of the universe? I'm not sure. Oh, um, that's that's a really good point because, again, pointing back to that introductory test, the, the mushroom text, kind of wraps it up with a discussion of faith. He's like, for those who have faith, this is what's going to happen. But then, like, to sort of continue with the question about freedom, I mean, he does say, importantly, I think at one point, he talks about degrees of freedom. And I think this is important for his... I don't know if this is part of his time wave theory, but he's talked about this elsewhere where he believes that this cosmic developmentalism, and I think he said this in the first part, it's a progression between high walls. And on one side you have habit, and on another side you have uh, novelty. Basically you can move around so much within those high walls, but this is gonna happen. Yeah, there, there seems to be a sense in which he wants to say that, you know, that the, in the earliest states, the universe was completely unfree. And that what we've been seeing is this evolution towards ever greater freedom. And that as, as you move forward, we have genuine freedom and we're free to do everything except become less free in some sense. That, that the movement towards the next step of freedom is always inevitable for him in a weird way. And it, and it yeah, creates yes. yeah, playground. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting novelty. paradox. And then novelty is his concept of freedom. Mm -hmm. And also then leaving uh, matter thinking of this is that the laws of physics are evolving to permit greater freedom. And we are, and people have said to me, well, don't you find it a little strange that such a momentous event would occur uh, in human history? 
After all, human history is 10,000 years wide. The planet is five billion years old. Pretty unusual coincidence that human history would be happening when this cosmic event happens. No, that's completely wrong. Human history is being caused by the nearby presence of this event. In other words, if you think of the event as something which has shells of influence, some of its shells of influence reach so far back in time that they drag life out of the primitive oceans. Some of its shells of influence reach so far back in time that they define the emergence of the hominid line out of the higher primates. Some shells reach back to Egypt some to medieval times. As you approach the present, it becomes stronger and stronger. But I would argue that the presence of human civilization on this planet is the strongest evidence we have that matter and organizational processes are about to make some kind of a leap to a new order of being. What, what history is, is the 25,000-year transition zone. Before you enter the zone, you're an animal. After you leave the zone, you're a god. But for 25,000 years, you're kind of an animal and kind of a god. And you're constantly being swamped by your animal nature, and then great teachers are appearing and dragging people back to the right line. And we are schizophrenic in history. Uh, a friend of mine once said, he said, history is the shock wave which precedes the eschaton. And I absolutely believe that. And I believe as historical processes intensify, it's reasonable to believe that we are ever closer to the eschaton. If my ideas seem strange to someone, I ask them, can you imagine this planet in 500 years? given the propagation of ordinary historical and scientific. Does this sound like St. Paul to you guys at all? Yeah, I was just a little lower than the angels, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just the way in which is needing to be at the place where it actually happens. Mm -hmm. I think the first Christians suffered from that as well. Their lives couldn't be wasted, so they just had to be where the Messiah actually appeared. Mm -hmm rates of uh, unfoldment and discovery. Can you imagine this planet in a thousand years? No, no one can imagine that because processes are now in play which so totally rewrite the script that no one can imagine a hundred years or two hundred years in the future because the discoveries which will be made in that span of time will so totally rewrite the human experience of itself and the environment that we cannot see deep into the future and this indicates to me that the future is exploding in an asymptotic uh, unfoldment into a kind of cultural superspace and uh, and our own bafflement at the impossibility of conceiving any real future given the political and social and technological forces in play is proof of that why would that be new though i mean haven't have people ever been able to to imagine the world in 500 years which i think goes back to your your comment about the early christians right they couldn't imagine 
the world existing in another 30 years. Like you can trace this out in, in, in the letters of Paul, you know, you sort of stack them up in what we think of as the probable chronology of Paul's letters. And in the early letters, uh, Paul is like, this shit's over in like 20 minutes, guys. Like, don't get right. married. Don't have kids. Quit your jobs. None of this matters. Cause like, we're, we're like on the way out. Uh, and then, you know, you get 20 years later and he's like, Oh, Oh boy. <laughs> like right. if you're yeah. going to get married, here's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a sense in which every moment wants to imagine itself in that, as, as that cusp point. Um, I read uh, Athanasius, uh, and he used this image of, uh, he just writes somewhere that, you, you know what it's like when you see some boys throwing uh, like sticks and rocks on a lion, then you know that that lion is, is dying or that it's sick. You know, he, he lived in a time where those kind of things actually happened. And to him, that was exactly the way in which the Christians behaved because they knew that uh, there was no death for them. Just that concrete image of, of the way in which you actually live your life so that you take risks and you kind of do things that others wouldn't do because, because you really do think that the crisis is coming and, uh, and that you will live for eternity. You know, and this is not a sentence I usually ever say, uh, but I, I, I think like McKenna needs a little bit more Augustine here um, in the sense that like when you look at something like the city of God, right, that's being written as like the Roman Empire is imminently collapsing around him. Um, like it's very clear, like the world as it as it is known is 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 falling to the ground uh, around every corner. And what I think is really profound about that text is that Augustine refuses to envision it in this sort of eschatological language. Uh, instead, he's really insistent that this is not that the, you know, the, the city of man is crumbling and the city of God comes next, but rather that the city of God and the city of man are, are sort of qualitatively different and they run parallel to each other at every moment. Uh, and I think that McKenna has this very apocalyptic eschatological view that wants to say the good thing is always coming next, that it is not going to be found with a qualitative different perspective on what is now. It's going to be by overcoming what is now, yeah. Um, yeah. which, again, is there's there's something I think sort of fundamentally sort of Gnostic about that that approach. Um, it's the trading of a, an actual future for one that is viewed on an ever receding horizon. This is the air outside your house. Sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's cold. This is the same ad. I don't even have hemorrhoids. This is weird. Before we go farther, I'd like you to attempt to give me a definition of concrescence and eschaton. Well, let's go backward. Eschaton first. Eschaton is a good word out of theology. It simply means the last thing. The last thing is the eschaton, and it is everything become one thing. Uh, for theologians, it's God. For somebody of a more materialist bent, it might be something else. But the eschaton is the last thing. Eschatology is the study of the time of the last thing. Now, what was the other word? Concrescence. Concrescence. This is a little trickier concept. Uh, I took it from Alfred North Whitehead. Concrescence is the idea of something that grows together. It concresses. It becomes more dense, more connected, more defined in space and time. And when I talk about the transcendental object at the end of time, or the coming of the eschaton, or hyper-novelty, I mean that the process of the human and 
and biological concrescence of intent reaches some kind of maximum. Concrescence is the end of the process of becoming. Becoming is not true being. True being exists at the concrescence. Be, uh, the kind of being we experience, becoming, is a partial state of being, much like history is a partial, partial state of concrescence. History definitely places us outside the world of biological intent, uh, the animal mind, but history does not bring us into the presence of the eschaton. It's a partial process, and concrescence is what waits at the end. The eschaton is the concrescence. But we really can't have any way of knowing what that is. Uh, I mean, he's not a theologian, of course, but yeah, he's just losing me more and more now, I feel. I mean, just this, the way in which uh, he is not satisfied with becoming, of, of course, to a Deleuzean, that, uh -huh. <laughs> that yeah, I get kind of sad that theology has this, I mean, classical theology has such a grip on, on thinkers and that he's kind of caught in that the only way in which we can imagine an eschatology would be as a kind of concretions of being uh, after we have stopped becoming. And, and I think that there's there's just something very strange about it because I don't know how to how to take what he just said in that section and put it together with his vision that you know the the transcendental whatever uh, the transcendental eschaton or whatever he calls it the the big god at the end of the universe or whatever that this is it is the place of full freedom and the place where novelty sort of reaches sort of infinity, like an infinite density of novelty. And at the same time for him, it's, it's a place without becoming and without history. And that's really strange to say that, like, like what does it mean to talk about novelty where it's, it's beyond history and beyond change? And completely uh, determined. Yeah, that doesn't sound like novelty or like freedom to me. And so there's, there are just very strange tensions in his, in his work, I think. I don't think Whitehead would be very happy about this use of concrescence. No. That's not what he had in mind. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned earlier Fukuyama, and I think although he's using this Whiteheadian process novelty-centric language, um, I think he's using it towards a very sort of Fukuyama end of history vision, yeah. which is this idea that we are reaching a point where history will stop, things will no longer change. And yet, paradoxically, his de description of what things not changing anymore is is infinite novelty, which is just, mm. yeah. <laughs> when was it the Fukuyama's book came out? I think it's about the same um, Was time. it 90, 91? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it was like 91 or so when Fukuyama Yes. Was. How much more? Are we going to make it? We got to make it through. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. That experience of that is going to be like? No. And the reason why is because... Asking that question is like asking a man looking east at 2 a.m. to describe the coming sunrise. It, he can't because it is literally over the event horizon of the future. And when we look into the future, we see that the east is streaked with rosy dawn, but we cannot conceive of the day that is about to come. 
All we can see is the dim glow of some kind of eschatological promise. Ask me this question in 2010, and I'll have a different answer. Um, back to this issue of physics and your description of the two things which are left out of their models. The way that you describe it is so self-evident and simple. The complexification, the further away that you get from the Big Bang, and the fact that everything is, the complexification is speeding up. Would you talk just a little bit about um, the relationship of those observations to uh, the, the, the world of the physicist and their efforts to define reality and why they're not using, uh, including in their models, these aspects that you're pointing to? The main reason they aren't friendly toward a model... Main, main physics. Well, the, the main reason physicists are not friendly to a progressive, concrescent model like this is because you would have to look at... you would have to give credit to biology for being a stage higher than chemistry, and you would have to give credit to human history as a stage higher than biology. And physicists study physics. If you study physics, there is no biology. You don't have to deal with issues of biology when you study physics. I mean, there is something called biophysics, but it's not well received in physics or biology. So physicists are, tend to discount biology even though uh, life on this planet is 4.83 billion years old, physicists just discount it. They call it an epiphenomenon. Well, con then when you talk to uh, sociologists, they, want, they give no credit to physics. Science has compartmentalized nature in order to analyze it, and there is no theory of nature as such. And that's really what I'm offering. I'm offering a theory which covers physics, chemistry, geology, biology, sociology, linguistics, the, the whole thing. In other words, not saying man is some special category, uh, not saying that we need artificial divisions, but that over the entire domain of known phenomena, this uh, tendency to complexify through time, A, and B, faster and faster, can be discerned. We need a theory of everything. Physics talks about theories of everything, but none of these theories of everything address biology, let alone sociology, linguistics, and, uh, you know, the phenomenon of, of human beings. Well, the archaic revival. There is a way of looking at the entire 20th century, beginning with Pablo Picasso bringing masks back from Africa and showing them around in French cafes in 1915, uh, uh, beginning with Freud's discovery of the unconscious and Jung's elaboration of those discoveries, and then every phenomenon of major importance that you care to mention in the 20th century, fascism, abstract expressionism, rock and roll, sexual permissiveness, psychedelic drug taking, uh, rave culture, pe body piercing, jazz, the list is endless. What do all these things have in common? 
they are reversions to arc to archaic behaviors they are represent rejections of the edwardian gentleman with his white man's burden and represent instead a realization that for us to survive and live with ourselves we have to re-empower archaic values as the century unfolded, the understanding of what this re-empowering of archaic values might mean has changed. Jung and Freud discovered the unconscious, discovered that we are not all ladies and gentlemen, but that there is a cannibal lurking within. Um, Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD demonstrated that that inner wilderness is accessible to most people through chemistry. Well then still later it was understood that the, the key ingredient in active shamanism is psychedelic plants, psychedelic experiences. And in a way that closed the loop between the impulse toward the archaic and the impulses of, uh, of modern science and modern medicine. Uh, the key is the psychedelic experience. That's what makes the shaman a shaman. That's what made the archaic in fact archaic and so people like Freud and Jung and the surrealists and the Dadaists and the abstract expressionists all of these people were very close to the mark the shaman is the paradigmatic figure and the psychedelic experience seems to be the anticipatory experience of, of this eschaton that we're headed toward you know when psychedelics were first I, when he talks about archaic values, I'm kind of curious what he means. I don't think he's going to get into that, but yeah, and this I think is is one of the again the many tensions which, like, I'm really fascinated by all these tensions. So there's this backwards facing idea of recovering archaic values in this hyper forward eschatological thing that we were discussing a couple of moments ago, and he wants to hold those together, which I don't think is like super weird, right? You get the exact same thing again in like theological circles. So, you know, you talk to the, the white evangelical and what do they want? They have this hyper eschatological vision where, you know, Jesus is coming back any minute and is going to blow up all the liberals and the gays uh, in the Muslims. Uh, and so you have that eschatological view. And, but then you also have this, this imposition that also in the now, we need to return to these archaic values, you know, the traditional family and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's weird for these two to sit together, but I think it's a strange thing that I just can't quite decide with all of these tensions that we've been identifying in his thought, whether these are problems where he hasn't properly thought through what he's talking about, whether they're just like, he doesn't realize there's these contradictions, um, or if they are productive tensions, if there's something interestingly dialectical happening, you know, so is concrescence and the eschaton both being central pieces, is that just a flat contradiction or is that a dialectical tension? I, I don't know. This disturbing thing about what he just said now is that when he's talking about history, he's actually talking about European history. Yeah. <laughs> like white male European history. And that's that. And that is kind of the peak of the planet and of uh, uh, the evolution. And, and I understand his talk about archaic, uh, the archaic as, as going, well, going back to kind of tribal uh, ways of living. 
uh, he did, did mention the white man's burden there also. But then it just, from being, I mean, I don't know when, like 10 minutes ago, so actually fascinating me with this, the way in which he connects everything and, and the way in which he actually places uh, humanity in the midst of whatever is going on as a, on a kind of plane. Now he's just right back into saying that if smart guys, white guys like himself, that is the peak of the evolution. And there's that sort of ro- romantic, romanticized borrowing from the the other. So you know, it's 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 Picasso goes to Africa, takes the parts that are valuable, uh, brings them back to Europe. Yeah, to yeah, the perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay. Being discussed, it was thought that they would prepare people for death. In a sense, they probably do. But in the same way that they prepare people for death, they prepare people for transformation. It gets you used to the idea that the world is not what it appears to be. And it gets you used to the idea that the world is somehow animate, intelligent, and proceeding along its own agenda. So in a way, shamans have always been anticipations of some future state of mankind. They're the masters of language. They are the ones who are telepathic with the animals. They are the ones who can see into the future. So this archaic nostalgia gets real focus once you realize that it is the shaman and his or her shamanic techniques that confers on them uh, the extra historical dimension, that that is how you get out of linear history. That's how you visit the realm of the ancestors. That's how you travel into the future. That's how you break up the tyranny of Newtonian serial time. Um, We have 14 years until this event uh, measured on the calendar. And, uh, you know, a really common, ordinary way to describe the times that we're living in is that they're very, very chaotic. Um, filled with acts of unspeakable evil. Um, And at the same time, there is this sort of buzz and thrust of optimism. Everything from a guy like Peter Schwartz talking about the long wave, the big booming economy, um, breakthroughs in, in, uh, you know, educational levels and qualities of life. But it's definitely... uh, a dynamic where you've got extremes of good and evil in that way. Would you talk a little bit about the relationship between that dynamic as we go forward and the novelty continues to climax? Well, novelty is not necessarily good or nice. Novelty is complex. That's what it is. And so I see really a concatenation of uh, tendencies and uh, forces here at the end. It's only going to get weirder. The level of contradiction is going to rise excruciatingly, even beyond the excruciating present levels of contradiction. (laughs) So... Uh, I think it's just going to get weirder and weirder and weirder, and finally, it's going to be so weird 
that people are going to have to talk about how weird it is. And at that point, novelty theory can come out of the woods uh, because eventually people are going to say, what the hell is going on? It's just too nuts. It's not enough to say it's nuts. You have to explain why it's so nuts. So between now and uh, 2012, the next 14 years, I look for the invention of artificial life, the cloning of human beings, uh, possible contact with extraterrestrials, possible human immortality, and at the same time, appalling acts of brutality, genocide, race baiting, uh, uh, homophobia, famine, starvation, because uh, the systems which are in place to keep the world sane are in utterly inadequate to the forces that have been unleashed. Uh, the collapse of the socialist world, the rise of the internet, these are changes so immense Nobody could imagine them ever happening. And now that they have happened, nobody even bothers to mention what a big deal it is. Uh, the fact that there is no such thing as the Soviet Union, people never talk about it anymore. But when I was a kid, the, the notion that that would ever change was beyond conceiving. Uh, so the good news is that as primates, we're incredibly adaptable to change. Put us in a desert, we survive. Put us in the jungle, we survive. Under Hitler, we survive. Under Nixon, we survive. We can put up with about anything, and it's a good thing because we're going to be tested to the limits. Uh, uh, the breakdown of anything, and this is why the right wing is so alarmed, because what they see going on is the breakdown of all tradition all order, all sanctioned norms of behavior. And they're quite right that it's happening, but they're quite wrong to conclude that it should be resisted or is somehow evil. Uh, the mushroom said to me once, it said, this is what it's like when a species prepares to depart for the stars. You don't depart for the stars under calm and orderly conditions. It's a fire in a madhouse. And that's what we have, the fire in the madhouse at the end of time. This is what it's like when a species prepares to move on to the next dimension. The entire destiny of all life on the planet is tied up in this. We are not acting for ourselves or from ourselves. We are, we happen to be the point species on a transformation that will affect every living organism on this planet at its conclusion. Let's pause for a second. Um, I see how, with, with uh, um, Jenkins calling it galactic cosmology, it's like our home continues to expand. We've gone from the village to the nation state to the planet. Now we're ready to take on the big picture. So let's just talk about the, the, the conclusions of the archaic mind, what it reaches. Well, the great watershed difference between the archaic understanding and what is called scientific materialism is the archaic mind understood, in fact perceived, that nature is conscious. 
nature is alive. Nature is an organism full of intent. Uh, the goal of the archaic mind is to connect with, communicate with, and align itself to this greater Gaian holism, which is sometimes called nature, the great spirit, the realm of the ancestors. But this is what the archaic uh, mind understood and was comfortable with. And in fact, it is true. Our own uh, decision to view the universe as dead, as inanimate as unintelligent allowed us, permitted us to dissect it, use it, and, uh, and uh, deny its validity outside of human purpose. Now the consequences of living like that is coming back to haunt us. You know, we have almost destroyed our home. We have almost cut the earth from beneath our own feet. So this impulse toward the Gailanic and the, and the archaic is uh, a survival instinct at this point. We must give uh, reverence and credence to nature and nature's methods because no other methods will allow us to work our way out of the present mess we're in. Uh, high temperature, high energy resource extraction, commodification, uh, mega agriculture, we're at the end of the rope for these things. So the archaic holds answers, but it only holds answers if we are willing to think of the universe as a living, intelligent entity in with which we are in partnership, not set against, but that in fact we are a part of uh, a morphogenetic intent and an unfolding reality that is larger than human understanding. Imagine, larger than human understanding. <laughs> so the whole entire Milky Way galaxy is a being? Well, it's a kind of, it's an organism, yes. And uh, the, the, the galaxy is a kind of an organism. You can think of it as a fractal resonance with a cell. The galaxy has a nucleus of very dense material where very mysterious processes are going on. Then it has a cytoplasmic envelope of stars and gas clouds that surround that core. And then it is an individual, very distinctly defined by the vast emptiness that lies between it and the next galaxy. Yes, I think nature builds by fractal intent and that uh, all organisms have a core and then a deployed surround, whether we're talking about the cell, the solar system, the earth, the galaxy. Uh, in the process of the conservation of novelty, uh, structures are created with cores that are more complex than their outlying neighborhoods. To my mind, a galaxy hanging in space is a picture of the time wave. Every star is a data point in an enormous computer simulation of the novelty wave. That's why it has that spiral structure. You know, scientists are very puzzled that the galaxies don't fly apart. They don't seem to have enough mass that their gravitation should hold them together. And there's been a lot of talk about dark matter or some missing factor. Well, the missing factor is novelty. Uh, 
the galaxy stays together because the galaxy wants to be a galaxy. In other words, it, it wants to hold on to the level of novel uh, morphology that it has achieved. It has an actual appetite for expressing itself in that form. That's why the galaxies are spirals. And in a sense, those spirals are very large pictures of the time wave where we can at last see it not confused with its uh, background or foreground. So everything organizes itself fractally, spirally, with a dense center in its spatial domain and a dense center in its temporal domain. We are like this, galaxies are like this, planets, stars, bird flocks, coral reefs. Uh, but in the case of the galaxy, it's particularly easy to observe the structure because the thing is so huge that its forces dominate and damp out other forces which might distort it. Guys, we made it. <laughs> kind of an abrupt ending there was a uh, lot there was a lot in that last section so yeah I'm not sure where to what thread to pick out there i'm really interested in thinking about uh his predictions for the next 14 years which were you know for us two decades ago because like in a really bleak way he was half right right like he was right about the explosion of racism and misogyny and homophobia and violence he was just wrong about all the fun stuff uh the aliens and the ai and and all of this. Yeah, um, yeah and but so the, weird, the weirder and weirder part was true as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also the fact that we don't talk about the big things that have happened, like the internet and that, uh, and well, the Soviet Union, to, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what happened there after, uh, after 99 is, is a different story. But um, I mean, his hopes that there would be a time when, uh, what did he say, the, the novelty could come out of the closet kind of thing that we would actually, we would be so amazed at the level of weirdness so that we would <laughs> kind of reach out for, for, his, uh, for his complexity theory. Uh, I, wish we, I, wish, I wish we would in a way. I mean, I don't think that, that would solve anything because he's just, he just has this very, I mean, the weirder and weirder bit was just going to lead us to a kind of, uh, eschaton uh, apocalypse or whatever but i still think he's right that we don't talk enough <laughs> about the complexity of the lives we're living in the world we're living in I, I think a really good example of that is like 2007 and 8 in the economic collapse which was i think a sort of generationally defining moment that we never talk about and that's so weird Right. Like particularly for like my age group, like we were all like graduating undergrad as the economy collapsed around us. And, it, you know, shocker, we all decided to go into grad school because the idea of trying to enter that market was was terrifying. Little little did we know it wasn't going to improve. And, and yet this is just it's not part of our discourse. Well, I've mentioned the 2008 economic collapse to my undergrads who, you know, granted were, were kids then. Um but they don't even know what I'm talking about. It's not on the radar that that was an event. Like, you know, there's lots of things that happened before they were born that they they have, you know, they know that the Vietnam War was a thing. They know all this. It is not part of our discourse to talk about the fact that like the global economy ground to a halt for like an entire year and devastated the lives of billions of people. And we just ignore it. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, I know. My brother was working in a in like this young internet company at the time. I think it was his first or his second job. 
and and I was training to become a priest, so I was kind of far away from from the kind of place he was in. But I felt that he was kind of where the future was happening, and and, and I was certainly not. And then after like two thousand and eight, uh, that image of whatever future we were looking for is just or heading towards was just uh, changed. Yeah, I think the only place you really saw any reaction that I think took seriously what happened was three or four years later when you have the emergence of Occupy. I think that was like the, yeah. the one moment where there was a real attempt to come to grasp because I, I really connect those two events. I think Occupy was an attempt to come to grasp with what happened yeah. in 2008. And, 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 you know, it was short lived and it, and it sputtered out and, and we, we redeposited 2008 back in our collective forgetting. Yeah. yeah and I think that piggybacks on the back of uh, 9-11, which was not too far before then. And these are like two events that sort of just punctured the reality of a lot of, of a lot of people. But it, it, we talk a lot about 9-11, but maybe that's because, you know, there was like a recognizable expl explosion, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like the difference between the statistics of people who die in automobile accidents versus people who die in airplane crashes. You know, the, the, the 200 yeah. people who die in airplane crashes is like, well, let's focus on that or whatever. But I mean, this idea of getting weirder and weirder, I was like, well, yeah, he's definitely right. And for someone like McKenna, the more terrible things got, it sounds like, the more he would be like, see, I'm right. It, the, the, good, the good thing is coming, guys. <laughs> you know, just hold out. Yeah, it's, just, it's like birth pangs. just like any charismatic creature. The birth yep. pangs, exactly. Um, there was something else in there he said about I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was kind of decentering the place of the human. And I appreciated what he said in some ways and found it a little bit troublesome in other ways, but I did sense a sort of ethical impulse in that. Not to master reality, but to kind of shepherd it, which again, you have this like mm. Christian I valence. I like that you brought in the Occupy moment there, Justin, because that, and to me, I mean, if we see, if we've had this narrative going on now with whatever it is that he's describing, this pro progressive uh, history peaking, well, let's say 2008, and then, and then we see the Occupy movement appearing after that, and we also see that the uh, climate activism and and the Arabic Spring and and you know all of these kind of activist movements, like, of course, of course, uh, we see uh, a kind of uh, taking back of agency because what he's talking about is that this developmental agency that is out of our hands is just going on and and human progress is part of of uh, the evolution of the universe but what we are seeing today uh, is actually all of these different bodies taking on agency and co-working with each other and also co-working of course with planet and other species and so on in the ecological movements which is out of his radar, I, I'd say. That is nothing that he can envision at the time. He just yeah. he just has his dream of going for the stars. It makes me think that the theoretical region that seems outside of his discussion is the, is the language of democracy. It seems like a conspicuous gap here in the sense that when he talks about, you know, what, what will this eschatological future look like? He's going to use language like novelty, but he's, he doesn't use this language of democracy, which I, I think in some ways is the way that he's, he's radically depoliticizing history, I think, in a large yeah. way that like history becomes a biological movement 
and it becomes a uh, a technological movement, but history is not a political movement for him. And I and I think that's just a kind of conspicuous lapse in his his thinking about uh, what the future is going to look like. Because I think the fight over democracy, um, I think, is is really the center of a lot of this, um, and it needs to be conceptualized as the center of you know whether we enter utopia or dystopia. I think is going to be a question of democracy. Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts on McKenna? You guys want to do this again on something else? <laughs> I, had a, I had a great time hanging out. Yeah. With no, you on this. no more McKenna, but but yes, yeah. something else would be fun. <laughs> well, maybe um, Petra, do you want to pick pick one for next time? Maybe we'll do one like in a month yeah, or two. We can do that. All right. Awesome. This was, yeah, this, was, this was really fun. I mean, to give maybe like my one sentence sort of. Uh-huh. concluding thoughts. I mean, what I'm left with, and, and, and this is probably obvious from everything I've said for the last two episodes, is that um, I just can't tell if he's uh, if he's full of contradictions or if he's full of dialectical tensions. Um, and and there's like part of me that, that is frustrated with the contradictions. And then there's part of me that wants to read him really generous as yeah. like a hyper dialogical, uh, sorry, a hyper dialectical thinker and to try to extract something from that. And, and I don't know, maybe like, uh, maybe I, I think at a certain point, I just, I don't, don't have time to be annoyed at people that much. And part of me just, just wants to be like, well, well I'm just going to read him as generously as possible because yeah. otherwise it's just another person to be annoyed with. <laughs> Your point on, contradiction i mean the the discussion at the end where he is talking about contradiction makes me think that he's very aware of all the contradictions maybe not so much in kind of what he's putting forth but i feel as though what appears to and this is my generous reading of him is what appears as contradiction is a function of his attempt to reconcile these contradictions with mixed results Right. So the I mean, ancient world and the and the future, um, the the individual and the and the cosmos. I mean, he does. He gives this all encompassing grant, as he says, a grand theory of everything. He's, he's putting that right up front. I think so, too. I think it's I'm, I more lean towards that than towards thinking that he's a consciously dialectical thinker in a deep sense. <laughs> but but you never know. I, I like that you're open for that possibility. Justin. Oh, I'm just thinking of like, uh, you know, obviously not not thinking of like Hegelian dialectic, but I mean, he's a Jungian, I think, in a lot of ways, like, you he know, is. periodically he keeps coming back to Jung. He went through, uh, what does he call it, like his, his Jungian Kabbalah phase or whatever. Um, uh, and so, you know, central to Jung's thinking is this idea of the coincidence of opposites. And I think for him, this is what you yes. see. And so th- things getting really bad right now, uh, that's one opposite. And so there must be a coincidence of its opposite. So uh, that's the the sort of imminent deification where we all become gods or whatever right Uh, and which again it brings us back to altizer yep yeah on that jungian line i mean Jung, you know famously wrote about alchemy and uh, mckenna is someone who was very interested in in the alchemical process and and talks and writes a lot about that and is one of the few people that i know of that actually tried to create the philosopher's stone in a real material way and that's a story for another time maybe but it's uh, fascinating. Well, now I feel all is forgiven. I want to take back everything critical that I've said. <laughs> he actually tried to do that. Yes. Like, yeah. If if I lived in the in the time of alchemists, I would be one. I think it's just so beautiful that they tried. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's um, 
let's call it a day. This was a lot of fun. Thanks guys for hanging out. Let's do it again. Yes, thank you. All right, y'all. Good one, y'all. Bye guys.